Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. We have a really quiet studio today. I am only joined by my good friend Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Uh, it's going good. I'm in my home, Camden County, and it's way, 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 way too hot. So um, I'm trying to survive through that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine how hot it is down there. Um, yes, our other two frequent guests of the last couple of weeks, Megan Payne and Tori Slatton, they're out basking in the fame and glory brought to them by our wonderful podcast. So you're stuck with just me and Luke this week. Um, on this week's show, we are talking about the uh, runoff for the Republican nomination for governor that is coming to a close. That vote which is up between Casey Cagle and Brian Kemp. That vote is going to happen next Tuesday, and early voting is ongoing. Um, so we're going to dig into this race as we sort of set up for the close of this race, talk about two recent debates that happened, and talk about some uh, scandals and interesting things going on with money that uh, separate these two candidates. And then for our second topic this week, we're going to check in on the Trump and Russia story. Um, So we are recording on Monday evening. And on Monday, Trump held his uh, summit with Vladimir Putin and held a really uh, interesting press conference that drew a lot of derision, I think, from both Democrats and Republicans, although we'll see if anything comes of that from Republicans. Um, this is on the heels of an indictment by Robert Mueller, the special counsel in the um, Russia election interference investigation. He indicted about a dozen Russian intelligence officials last Friday on charges where he laid out in a pretty detailed fashion the way in which Russia attempted to influence the American elections in 2016. Um, And there was some discussion as to whether or not those indictments were a signal to President Trump in advance of his meeting with Vladimir Putin on Monday. So we'll talk about those two things. And then we've got an interview to play for y'all. I sat down with Don Johnson. She is running against Uh, Frank Ginn in State Senate District 47. And so we talked about her vision for what she'd like to do if she uh, serves in the state legislature, her background, and uh, pretty importantly, her vision for a positive agenda for uh, people with disabilities, because that's her professional background, is working in support services for people with disabilities. So she's an interesting candidate to watch, and we had a great conversation last week that we will play for you on this week's show. Uh, But let's go ahead and dive in on the final chapter of this runoff for the Republican nomination for governor. The winner of this race between Brian Kemp and Casey Cagle is going to face Stacey Abrams in the general election in November. Um, So as this race stands right now, as we get close to the finish, the polling basically has this a dead heat. Uh, Kemp leads by three points in the latest poll from uh, the AJC and University of Georgia. Uh, but that lead is within the margin of error. And basically most of the polling for the last couple of weeks has had both Cagle and Kemp within a couple of points of each other. We also had some big endorsement news out of this race as the cards continue to fall between who is a supporter of Kemp and who is a supporter of Cagle. Uh, Georgia's Governor Nathan Deal endorsed Casey Cagle today on Monday. And Hunter Hill, uh, his endorsement of Brian Kemp was announced on Sunday. He's going to formally endorse Brian Kemp on Tuesday at an event with Kemp. Um, So, Luke, 
what are you looking for as this race draws to a close and we come up to that vote next week? I guess what's surprising me about this race is like how little policy has actually mattered. Uh, you know, uh, that's that's sort of the whole reason that we we got into this podcasting business, right? Is to talk about policy and to talk about the things that other uh, media outlets weren't covering as much, and we got frustrated on how much it was based on the horse race. But usually. Uh, in these races, there was one like bright spot. There was one happy moment that we always had, which was the you know debates near the end of the campaign cycle that usually are, are pretty substantive. You, you know, there's a little horse race and a little flair and accusations thrown, but usually there's some substance. For me, I watch both of those debates, and for the majority of it, it just seemed like there's a lot of mudslinging going on between Casey Cagle and Brian Kemp, and a lot of it. Uh, I mean, it just it just seems like a, a lot of nothing burgers because both Brian Kemp and Casey Cagle have like these minor scandals that really don't seem to be that big to me. Uh, you know, with Casey Cagle and his tape and Brian Kemp and some uh, political donations that he's received, as well as some financial obligations that Casey Cagle is claiming that he uh, Kemp is not meeting and. To me, it's just like, I don't know how much anyone cares. So, like, the usually very good Atlanta Press Club debate was just, like, awful (laughs) this time because, for whatever reason, the moderators who were asking questions were just obsessed with these minor scandals, and every single time, every answer somehow found their way back to those issues, and that was all all that they really asked them about, and, you know, from that's all I could take away from it because every other answer involved... Brian Kemp or Casey Cagle saying the other one was lying about what was going on and not accepting responsibility. And it's just, I, I don't know what the differences between these candidates are right now, uh, besides, you know, K, uh, Brian Kemp trying to portray himself as the true conservative and holding slightly more conservative views. And so I say all that to say, I'm just kind of surprised because uh, I was expecting, um, may, maybe with false hope, that um, especially like Casey Cagle would have like put out some big policy idea that he was trying to push and that would have been his way of like trying to you know break through the news cycle in the in the runoff or that even Kemp might have tried to do something like that and instead it just seems like they're doing exactly what they were doing before and now they have just a little bit more dirt to throw at the other one and they're just trying to you know bog down their opponent in so much mud that they come out on top and it just looks desperate out of both of them. I think that the reason that policy hasn't really played a very important role is there really isn't a lot of daylight between them on policy. Um, I saw, I heard uh, Greg Bluestein and Bill Nugget talking about this on Political Rewind that in the Atlanta Press Club debates, they actually did sort of lean towards asking policy questions when the moderators and the journalists on the panel were asking the questions. But when the candidates had the opportunity to question each other, they stayed really deep into scandal land and and wanted to paint their opponent with a really thick coat of mud. Um, But that that is sort of the central point of the messaging between these two candidates as they come to the finish. For Casey Cagle, it is attacking Brian Kemp on a myriad of things that went on when he was the Secretary of State, the uh, release of Social Security numbers that happened on his watch, the erasing of a server at Kennesaw State in uh, related to some sort of election security issue that happened while Kemp was secure was Secretary of State. And the most recent scandal, which is the the one that's most interesting to me and most telling, is the 
donations that Brian Kemp has received from industries and organizations that he has some role in overseeing as Secretary of State. The AJC did a nice deep dive into uh, Brian Kemp's financials and found organizations where the Kemp campaign has accepted donations from either companies that are regulated by the Secretary of State's office and the various sort of uh, arms of that office, which include things like the massage board that oversees massage therapists in the state. This was the most interesting one to me because uh, Brian Kemp actually held a fundraiser with the CEO of a couple of massage envy clinics um, earlier this year. And the clinics that this guy who hosted the fundraiser for Kemp, these clinics that this guy runs have four pending sexual assault uh, claims against them from women who were in the care of massage therapists at these clinics who say that they were assaulted, uh, that they were groped by the massage therapists that were, you know, supposed to be taking care of what are, what really are essentially patients. Um, Kemp basically has blown off every opportunity to try to explain donations like these. He said that, they have given back some money from companies that are directly under uh, under the oversight of the Secretary of State, but they're making this key distinction that if you're if you're a company that has donated to the Kemp campaign and you're under Secretary of State oversight, they will return the money. If you are a employee, a CEO, if you run a related business to a business that is overseen by the Secretary of State, they're going to keep the money. Um, and it's been interesting as you know, you look at these massage envy clinics is that they're claiming that, uh, you know, they're within their rights on the right side of the law of keeping the money, but the massage envy clinics that they're supposed to be regulating, they've not had any therapists lose their licenses. They haven't really concluded the investigations that are involved. And, um, you know, in my opinion, WSB really missed an opportunity when they tried to question Kemp about this at the debate, because they, you know, they asked basically about the situation, but they did not ask Kemp the most important question that I think he needs to be asked, which is, why do you think it's okay to accept political contributions from somebody who runs a company under your oversight, who has these claims of sexual assault at their facilities against them? Why is that morally okay? How do you justify doing basically political business with somebody who's got these complaints, whether or not it's okay by the letter of the law, whether or not it fits this distinction of is it a business that is regulated by the Secretary of State, or is it an employee or a CEO or whatever distinction they're trying to make in a really legalistic fashion. You know, Kemp, Kemp doesn't want to talk about it. um, And in WSB really missed the opportunity to press him on that issue. I mean, I guess I agree with you, and I obviously think that he should have, you know, should return those contributions, and that would be a better way to handle this, and then we wouldn't have to talk about this. Um, and I especially think that because what what frustrates me about both debates is that I got very little picture of what either one of them plans to do for this state, and I feel like anybody else who was watching it didn't either, because. To me, this this is very similar for for both candidates. It's very similar to the scale of importance is like Hillary Clinton's email server, and I don't really care. Like I don't, I don't, I really don't. 
like it's bad it's stupid they shouldn't do it but i don't want wsb to spend so much of their time talking about that because i can't tell you what brian kemp is going to do about education because they decided that his donations were more important than that i can't tell you what casey cagle wants to do on you know like medicaid expansion because he didn't get asked about that he got asked about a tape where he talked off the cuff to a political a former political opponent and i don't think that's more important than what policy beliefs these candidates have and i feel like it's going to be harder to hold them accountable either one of them because we're wasting so much time on this type of stuff and what i think is 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 more important is if this is a preview of what we're going to see in the general election then i do not have high hopes <laughs> for either you know either reality you know if kemp wins or kegel wins i feel like we're not even going to talk about any of the things that either one of these candidates do it's going to be you know the republican talking about Stacey Abrams debt problems while she talks about some recording or some donations and we don't actually talk about the issues that matter and I think people are just tired of that I'm tired of that (laughs) I just I just you know I I don't want that to be what this whole race becomes yeah and I I actually don't think that that's where the general election is going to go but really quickly on this point on you really the the scandals that are engulfing both the Cagle and Kemp campaigns kind of come back to a question of character. At least their opponents are trying to assert that these either the secret tape of Cagle or the donations that were taken by Kemp are a window into the character of either of these men. There has been scrutiny of Abrams' personal debt that is also sort of uh, labeled as a character issue for her and, and how that's emblematic of her financial stewardness and uh, and how she would be in managing the state budget. The interesting thing about all three of these when you line them up against each other is Cagle and Kemp have repeatedly tried to spin and lie their way out of the uh, predicaments that they're in. Cagle um, said of, of Tippins who... Uh, collected that secret recording and is now distributing it to uh, the other candidates that have been in this race um, basically said, you know, how, how could, how could uh, Clay Tippins do this? Who does this? Uh, He called Clay Tippins evil and basically cast himself as a victim. When it came to the donations issue, uh, Kemp spokesman Ryan Mahoney, when Kemp was originally called out on this by Renee Unterman, who's a state senator, but she's also a surrogate for the Cagle campaign, uh, Mahoney called out Unterman personally and very directly and saying that Unterman was mentally unstable, um, that she should seek some help before she hurts herself or anybody else. Um, for people who've been paying attention to this for a long time, Renee Unterman is somebody who's dealt with uh, depression in her life and her son committed suicide. And so the and and she was a public official through a lot of this. So a lot of these trials in her life are things that are publicly known. And Mahoney, instead of addressing the issue of Kemp and the donations, really wanted to pour salt in the wounds of Renee Unterman on that point. Stacey Abrams, uh, has taken this uh, questions of her character completely differently. She's never pointed fingers about her debt. She said that she has this debt. She's explained why she has this debt, including 
uh, the need to take care of relatives and older parents. And um, there was some member of her family, I think it was her father, who she was helping pay for cancer treatments for at some point. You may have known, you may have heard, I have some debt. (laughs) I've made good money and I've spent it on lots of different people besides myself. I have parents that I take care of and a niece that my parents are raising and a great, my, my grandmother lives with them. And they like knowing, yes, yay debt. They, <laughs> <laughs> I think what gets people excited is having a governor who can talk about the real lives that people live. And so it's not about mythos and it's not about um, you know, a slogan. It's about having someone running for this office who's actually lived our lives. And that's what they want. And so it was, uh, you know, all of these are a real window into the character of all three of these people. And it's Abrams who has, you know, stood by her situation, been honest about it, and hasn't pointed fingers at other people. And Cagle and Kemp have repeatedly, when they're pressed on this, tried to shift the blame for both of these things onto other people. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's uh, very revealing of all three of their characters because that that was something that struck me in watching this debate was just or the two debates rather is just how aggressively hard both candidates were trying to uh, distance themselves from responsibility on the emerging scandals that they were dealing with uh, because both both Kemp and Cagle just could not even begin to admit any type of responsibility. And so I think it will be interesting to see if if my feeling is correct and that at least a, you know, a substantial portion of the general election debate becomes this like mud throwing stuff that we're seeing right now. Uh, if that is the case, I think Abrams will handle it much, much better because she will just say, I, I've honestly never seen any candidate do it the way that she does it, and I'm I'm refreshed by it because pretty much any personal attack that I've seen against her does not work, and she actually turns it into a strength. Because the the other thing that you can't cover about the debt situation is that um, Abrams uses it as a way to uh, assure voters that she empathizes with them and that she understands uh, a lot of the struggles that. Um, you know, Georgians are going through because she too are going through those struggles of having family members who are sick and having to, uh, you know, spend a lot of her own money to, you know, get them the care that they need. And so, uh, when, you know, she talks about the need to expand Medicaid, that's something she can talk about from a lot of personal experience. Uh, whereas, you know, most of, most of the, um, scandals that the other two are facing are, are far less personal and relatable. So on, on that front, I, I'm hoping it doesn't go that route. But if it does, it's a it's a tricky uh, area for the Republicans because they probably will be walking into a lot of traps. Um, so to wrap up on the debates, did you find either Kegel or Kemp to be a winner of these debates or more compelling? I, I know you weren't very impressed with either, but is there anybody that got an upper hand out of these debates? You know, I started this podcast with a you know message of hope that we are trying to not be horse racy monsters and here we are being horse racy monsters uh you know it's a week to an election so i'm, I, I'm excited about and the that's horse fair race. that's fair <laughs> you know we're not doing this during session we're not saying who's winning who won today during session so i i will i will give us a pass uh i mean i don't think either one of them won uh, you know put my commentator hat on i mean kemp seemed really tired 
during the WSB debate. Like he forgot that he had a second question that he could ask Hagel and like thought he already asked it. And he just, he just seems exhausted, which I mean, you know, to be fair from what I hear, he's campaigning pretty hard and around all the states. So I, I'm kind of, really, I'm kind of surprised Hagel doesn't seem more tired. Um, and I, I, I don't know, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of, it's interesting how going into this, I think both you and I thought that, this was Cagle's race to lose. And in some ways it, you know, at least according to polling, it, he very well might be losing it. Um, so it will be interesting to see what, if anything we hear in the next, you know, week before this, this race, uh, ends because I, I feel like it's a toss up completely. I don't feel like either. I don't feel like either one of these debates mattered in that. I feel like it just sort of exacerbated the toss up nature of it. So I actually thought that Kegel, particularly in the WSB debate, I thought that Kegel dominated that debate to go full on CNN pundit uh, into my analysis here. Um, I thought that Kegel Are you going to list really... the 10 reasons why Casey Kegel won, won the WSB no, debate? No, I'm not Crystal Lizza. Maybe I'll write that up later. Yeah. Um, no, I, I thought that Kegel... He was really good in just asserting his position on things, whether or not it was the truth. Um, so the original source of these Kegel tapes is a discussion that he had with Clay Tippins where he said that he stopped um, a, a bill that funds private school scholarships for students, that it's an issue that's important to conservative school reformers, that he had beaten that legislation to a pulp with Education Committee Chair Lindsey Tippins for several years. And in this debate, he just flat out asserts that he is the one who's been pushing conservative school reforms, which is in 100% complete contradiction to what he says on the tape. And Kemp did not press him on this. It, he did not make Cagle sort of pay for blatantly lying about this issue. And so, you know, it, it's funny to say that Cagle's a liar and that he won the debate. But, you know, he, he lied so convincingly about his position on, on education issues um, that he just came off as really credible. He had good turnarounds to everything that was thrown at him from either the moderators or from from Brian Kemp questioning him on the tape and then he would he would pivot immediately from his response to whatever claim that they were making basically undermining whatever claim that was thrown against him and then he could like within the same breath talk about career academies and his record on education and his record on other issues um and so you know i certainly don't think that he was like very truthful or very honest about, you know, the actual record and the facts that we all know to be true. Um, but he spun and lied so effectively that he looked really confident in what he was saying. And like you noted, Brian Kemp seemed kind of sleepy and he just, you know, Casey Cagle keeps throwing at Brian Kemp as we come down to the finish that the only thing Kemp can talk about is the tapes and, Kemp really didn't have a lot of substance to lean on in the debate aside from the tapes. And then Kemp's most recent ad that came out today on Monday, the day we're recording, um, 
was framed by Bluestein as sort of the closing argument on this race from Kemp. And it says, you know, after having Cagle on his heels as it relates to the tape, Kemp is saying that he's the candidate who's going to say Merry Christmas, and he's the candidate who's going to say God bless you, and he's the candidate who stands with Donald Trump. Like, (laughs) he really doesn't seem like he has much to run on aside from the tape. But regardless of all of that, the tape might be the ultimate doing in of Casey Cagle. It would just put, I think, a pretty weak candidate into the general against Stacey Abrams. Well, we know uh, your first of 10 reasons why Casey Cagle won the debate. He's an excellent liar. But um, I think I mean, I think it's it's true in, in that Kemp, like for people that did not see the WSB debate, like he was sleepier than Obama during the first 2012 debate, which was a disaster. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, mean, I agree with you. He's only raised Kemp's only raised four point five million dollars this cycle. And uh, Cagle's raised twice as that. Um, in both debates, I agree with you. His only argument was, look, no matter what Casey Cagle says, you can't trust him because of this tape and he's going to sell you out, which very well might be true. Um, but that being said, that's not a really great argument of why you should elect Brian Kemp as governor. It's just an argument of why you shouldn't elect Casey Cagle. And so if, if um, Kemp wins, it probably is because of that tape, but it, it will be very curious to see what he does after that. And then for Casey Cagle's sake, it'll be interesting if he wins, how he recovers from a primary that definitely has left him bruised. Um, So the kind of final bit of fresh news that we have on this are the two endorsements that came out um, Sunday evening and Monday morning. Um, So Hunter Hill, uh, he finished third in the primary in May. He is endorsing Brian Kemp. And then Governor Deal, uh, the current sitting governor, he is endorsing Casey Cagle. Um, so Luke, do you think that either of these endorsements are going to play an important role in the final stretch in this race? Does, do either of these kind of give an upper hand to one of these candidates? So when I was talking to my Republican friends about how this race was, uh, shaping out the end, uh, they both felt like that camp was getting surprisingly close. Um, most of them were Kegel supporters. And the thing that they were very curious about was going to happen was what was Deal going to do and what was Hunter Hill going to do? And so we now have answers on both of those questions. And I th- I think it might cancel each other out. I mean, you know, Deal... It, oh, well, like, first, they're both super late. So on that front, I don't feel like there's a whole lot of people who were on the fence just, like, waiting for Nathan Deal to tell them who to vote for. Um, and Or Hunter Hill, for that matter. But I think... Probably, I don't think there's a whole lot of like Nathan Deal voters who were like, I don't know, I might vote for Kemp, but then now that you know, now that Nathan Deal has endorsed uh, Cagle, I'm gonna stick with Cagle. Like, I feel like most of the people that were going to vote for uh, Cagle were already going to, and the Deal endorsement doesn't matter that much. Whereas the Hunter Hill one might matter a little bit more if uh, you know there's some hardcore Hunter Hill fans out there who. Uh, were trying to figure out where they wanted to put their support. I think that's true also just because Governor Deal's endorsement kind of seemed like he felt like he had to do it and that it wasn't very enthusiastic and it was sort of as phoned in as it could be, whereas Hunter Hill's endorsement seems a lot more uh, enthusiastic and, uh, you know, 
a you know working hard to help so we'll we'll see if it ends up mattering or not but i think i think kemp needed that endorsement really badly and i he's got it now yeah i think you know kemp has the uh good fortune of basically collecting the support of every other vanquished republican candidate um i don't know that all of these were official but but tippins clearly seems to be backing Kemp over Kegel if he's giving snippets of this secret tape to Brian Kemp. It would be a very um, strange strategy if, if he was not. So, so, somewhat like Trump's, uh, you know, claims of what Russia was up to, but, you know, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, and then, and then Hill is now lined up behind Kemp, and I believe Brian, uh, not Brian Williams, Michael Williams, uh, did endorse Kemp formally shortly after that race ended, but he's kind of since faded from uh, any importance in this race at all. The, the thing that was interesting to me on timing, I think it's interesting that you say that these are really late, uh, because, um, I actually think that in some sense, the endorsement by Nathan deal of Casey Cagle might be a little bit too early that this endorsement would have been a good way to squash a bad news cycle for Casey Cagle. And the thing that we've seen with the secret tape, that has dogged him for much of this runoff is that it's kind of trickling out slowly, but surely Um, there is a reference to some long discussed rumors in Georgia politics in the first tape. Uh, At one point, Clay Tippins says he's talking about the policy that's that, that they've been discussing. This is in the tape where they discuss those student scholarship organizations, but he, he basically says, you know, what you're saying about this policy and what you told me about quote, the girl stuff makes me feel like we're dealing straight up, which is ironic because they were not dealing straight up at all. Um, the girl stuff is a reference to some rumors about an affair that have swirled around Kegel since his, uh, maybe run for governor in 2010 um, and his run for lieutenant governor in 2006. These are things that were never proven. We should be clear that Casey Cagle has always denied these rumors. He said that they were rumors. Um, they've been the subject of complaints that you can find in the news if you go back to reporting from 2010. And so what I've been interested in seeing is what Tippins references in that little snippet of the tape and if that becomes something that comes out in a final sort of release and if so if it's something like that or if it's something that's really damaging then you know both Casey Cagle doesn't have an endorsement to squash that news cycle and Nathan Deal might actually get asked about it and have to defend the candidate that he has endorsed on you know any number of things that could come out from that tape to be clear yet again let's reiterate those are all rumors and we will see if any of that matters um but you know that is sort of the thing that overhangs this race as it comes to a close is if anything comes out that uh, casey cagle can't defend is there is there anything luke you're looking for in this final week to get a sense of of who's going to win this race or is this kind of been static for a few weeks and you're just like ready for it to end well i've been ready for it to end as soon as it started uh so on that front uh i don't know what it is but like primaries on both sides um this cycle have just been miserable and have just seemed you know just really not enjoyable in, in a way that they they usually are um so i just i'm just ready for this to to be over so that putting my parsing hack 
you know, hat on. I know which Republican I have to deal with in November and who, you know, we need to be messaging against and, uh, you know, working against. But as far as a, you know, putting, putting my media hat back on, um, really, I'm just, I'm just curious if there's going to be any big thing, um, from either candidate because, I know that the Kegel tape releases have definitely like been in conjunction with the K- the campaign. I'm sure they are, but it just seems it seems like neither one of these candidates have really done anything worth covering since the general election. I mean, the general primary rather, um, and so it's just been very boring. And on, on a last note, while I see it in some of the stuff they cover, uh, you know, in some of like their Facebook posts and stuff like that. I was kind of surprised how neither one of these candidates um, have really started the argument against Stacey Abrams. And I think that's a really interesting thing um, because I know like in their closing statements for the Atlanta Press Club debate, both of them sort of indicated that they'd be the best person to go against Stacey Abrams. But that was pretty much the first time she came up. And so, not in this next week, but what, what I'll be really curious is after this runoff is over, how effectively they can transition to like actually talking about Stacey Abrams because she's been out there making her arguments for a while now, and I feel like for the people that follow this, I feel like they kind of know what her message is and what she's talking about and like what she plans on doing, and I feel like she's very comfortable in doing that, whereas these two other candidates have not really been doing that as much. And I just think that could really be an interesting thing. And we get some idea of where this election is going to go based off of what happens very shortly after the runoff. Well, I should note that the only endorsement that seems to be left in this race now that Donald Trump has invited Vladimir Putin into our politics is uh, whether or not Vladimir Putin is going to choose Brian Kemp or Casey Cagle. Um, so that one we will have to wait and see. Um, but let's transition into Russia. And Luke, can you just start off uh, with uh, filling not only our listeners, but me in about uh, what happened today? So not just today, but just sort of like in the past couple weeks, we've had um, Donald Trump on the international stage because there's been a lot of meetings between NATO partners and today he met with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki and the real thing that people have been wondering is like what is what is Trump going to do when he meets with Putin and I really was curious to see this as well and I have to say that it, it, it turned out about the way that I thought it would which is that they would discuss a lot of things in private that we would not hear about those things. And then Trump would come out and say that Putin did nothing wrong and he's my best friend and we need to stop looking here. And and that's, that's pretty much what has happened. And what I think is interesting in that happening is that the Mueller investigation, which, you know, seems to be very politically savvy, but mostly tries not to directly get themselves involved in like the what's happening day to day in politics for the first time really did do that because you know Donald Trump met with uh you know Vladimir Putin on Monday I so on Friday Mueller's team 
uh, released 15 indictments of Russians who were uh, accused of interfering in the election. And then they also announced the arrest of, and I hope I'm saying this right, Maria Butina, who is a Russian who was who was in the United States and was basically um, trying to work with the NRA and other Republican groups to create uh, channels between those groups and Russia. And so it, for the first time, what I find very interesting is for the first time, the Mueller investigation is trying to send a, or at least seems to be trying to send a direct message to those uh you know uh, to president trump and those around him that there is something going on because the the booting uh indictment is is fairly serious uh, it is like espionage charges it is you know charges that she was working as an agent of the russian federation and had not you know spoken with the uh justice department in the way that you're supposed to do when you're lobbying for a foreign government uh so you know they're very serious allegations and um that's that's where we are so so kyle as someone who doesn't follow this as much as i do what do you find interesting about this i mean i guess i'm interested in this sort of emerging argument on from conservatives on this sort of split between what Donald Trump says and does and what the government in sort of an official capacity and in a policy capacity does as it relates to the Russia issue. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what happened today, but, but what I absorbed from the press conference was that, uh, Trump had the opportunity to condemn Vladimir Putin for interfering in our elections and the indictments that were released from Mueller's team right before Trump took this trip seemed to be an invitation for him to do that because the indictments were interesting in that they put a lot of details on paper about how the Russians and, and people who are, who were, uh, Russian agents, they were employees of the Russian intelligence services, um, how they managed to infiltrate, not infiltrate, how they managed to impact the election by hacking into the DNC, the DCCC, and the Hillary Clinton campaign. Um, so Trump, Trump was basically given an invitation to call Vladimir Putin out on this. And then from what I gathered from the press conference today, as he basically made the argument that, well, yeah, our intelligence agencies say that Russians were involved in hacking email accounts and trying to influence the 2016 election. And but Vladimir Putin says, oh, it definitely wasn't us. It definitely wasn't the Russians. And Vladimir feels really strongly about that. So so I'm just going to take Vladimir at his word. Um, there were a lot of people that were horrified on Twitter and social media today at the president's performance in this press conference. And I saw a really sharply worded statement from John McCain about this being one of the most abysmal performances by a president on the international stage in a while. Um, so Luke, how meaningful is this really is are are people lighting their hair on fire about 
something that Trump is simply saying that's not that important? Or does Trump's performance on the world stage and and what he said about Vladimir Putin in this press conference today, is that really meaningful? It's hard to tell, uh, you know, because we, we don't know what's going to happen after this. Uh, in a vacuum, this does not seem to be all that important because of the fact that despite some strongly worded statements, which, you know, you read uh, John McCain's, which was definitely the strongest, but, uh, you know, uh, other folks who have been more tepid to call out the president for this kind of thing were, you know, uh, refreshingly more willing to today uh, because, uh, you know, Paul Ryan said there is no question that Russia interfered in our election and continues continues attempts to undermine our democracy. Uh, former CIA John Brennan, who uh, is is never uh, never afraid to call out Trump, said that he is wholly in the pocket of Putin and that his comments were nothing short of treasonous. So. I don't know what happens after this, though. You have very strong comments from both Republicans and Democrats that want Donald Trump said was unacceptable and that he, for some reason, the man who, despite uh, (laughs) Barack Obama releasing multiple versions of his birth certificate, still believes that he was, you know, born in Kenya. And despite being probably the only man in the U.S. government that claims that Russia did not interfere in our election, believes Vladimir Putin that that Russia did not interfere just because he says so. Um, And I don't know, like, what his end game is with this or, like, why he's doing it. And it's one of these conversations that frustrate me because it inevitably like pushes inevitably pushes you towards conspiracy talk in the sense that like the easiest explanation is that there's something more going on here. And because any sane person who was under the pressures that Donald Trump is under to not look friendly to Russia while he just continuously does everything he possibly can to look friendly towards Russia. And so it's just inexplicable to me why he would continue to do that. So what what worries me, though, is the fact that, like, Vladimir Putin and Trump had at least an hour conversation by themselves with just them and their translator, and then they had a working lunch. We don't know the contents of either one of those conversations. I suspect we will in the next couple days. Uh, They did not announce any sort of new policies or new joint agreements between the two countries. But in the context of having Trump harangue our NATO allies about how they're not contributing enough to the de, you know mutual defense and that um you know germany is basically in the you know in the pocket of russia or some similar phrase that he used it's just confusing <laughs> and it's weird and i'm just that that's my main response to it is that i cannot come up with a reasonable explanation of of what is happening here and i feel like it's a much bigger deal than it is and the damage that it's doing to this country, not only with its allies, but, you know, within the country itself of not knowing who we can trust is, is really concerning to me. Yeah, it'll, (laughs) I've got my Chris Eliza hat on today. I was going to transition right into the politics of this. The five Um, reasons why Donald Trump won, won the Trump, (laughs) the Trump Pugin meeting. No, it sounds like he lost it. Um, Yeah, no, he did. um, Just because I don't, you know, from a policy and like a really substantive perspective, it's going to be interesting to see if, you know, Donald Trump is a really abnormal president. And I think everybody in this country knows that. And I think a lot of people around the world know that. 
Um, so it'll be interesting to see, and this is something we can't learn until we have a different president, if most of the damage Trump is doing is going to be repairable by the next president who basically can come in and be like, man, can you believe that guy? I'm glad he's gone. Um, and, and maybe can reaffirm the commitments that, you know, this nation stood by through the Obama administration. Um, or if it does do some lasting damage in the meantime, the substantive issue that seemed to be on the table for these discussions between Trump and Putin was whether or not Trump would basically green light or give some sort of credence to Putin's efforts to annex Crimea, part of Ukraine. Um, Ukraine, I don't think, is a part of NATO, right? It is not. Um, But the concern of this shift from Trump basically bad-mouthing our allies in NATO and then turning around and not holding Putin accountable for interfering in our elections and then maybe... Um, in this private closed door conversation addressing the issue of Ukraine and basically giving Putin the green light to make Crimea a part of Russia instead of a part of Ukraine. That's what's been so unsettling to our our allies. Um, on the politics of it, though, you know, the Mueller investigation indictments from last Friday and today start to shed some light on some detail about where this investigation could go. And so Republicans are going to have to return to either calling out Trump on the details of these indictments as they come out and saying, you know, what Trump or people related to Trump in the campaign Um, what they did is wrong, or they're going to have to find a way to defend it and undermine the Mueller probe. And the fact that Trump is sort of on the wrong side of our intelligence agencies on even Paul Ryan. And, um, you know, it's not just Democrats, it's a bunch of people that are supposed to be on Trump's team. Um, you know, I wonder if that's going to limit their patience and being willing to defend him. And, and if this is sort of the beginning of how it all starts to crumble for him, um, or if, you know, what, what he's saying with Putin ultimately isn't that significant. Yeah. And I, again, I, th- I think this is one of those things that depending on where this all ends, that this will be a very significant day or a day forgotten to history. Because if, if this does end with Trump going down because of something that happened with Russia, then this will be a very important day. And if Trump just rides out his term and Mueller closes up his investigation with a, a couple more arrests and you know no, nothing really connecting the uh, Trump campaign to any of Russia's activities, then it will just be a very confusing <laughs> chapter and a just inexplicable set of decisions by Donald Trump that went against his political, you know, uh, Donald Trump's political interests and best, you know, best approaches and in so many ways that I just, I can't imagine why he's doing it other than there's something that he needs to hide. It's all very strange. And it, it, I mean, I have, largely resisted indulging in some of this too much. I mean, I I think that the Mueller 
investigation and the potential for a report gets really interesting if in the middle of a midterm campaign season, Republicans have to respond to this and they're trying to confirm a Supreme Court justice and Brett Kavanaugh, and they're trying to keep the budget on track, and they're trying to do a lot of things that are difficult in the day-to-day uh, machinations of politics, but are are going to just get overwhelmed by, uh, you know, something that paralyzes our politics in the way that Nixon and Watergate did towards the end. Um, you know, that that's an environment that we're potentially looking for in the fall if all this comes together. Um, but it is hard to talk about this without feeling like you're indulging in conspiracy theories, like you said, and, and the, the thing <laughs> that seems to be out there that everybody is sort of speculating about is the P tape. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, you know. I don't think that's, I, I think that's very possible, but I think at the end, at, you know, at the end of the day, it it could be something just as simple that there's a lot of financial entanglements between Donald Trump and some Russian oligarchs. And there's just a lot of very strange business practices that the Trump organization got into in the past decade. And all, all I know is that we're not at the end of this thing yet. Uh, Robert Mueller says, or at least is reported that his office says that they would like to wrap this investigation up uh soon so hopefully we will get some answers and we will see what is at the end of the rainbow with all this um but until then even if there is nothing there i i think it's notable and it's important to talk about just how easy it's been for the republican party to throw away everything that they criticize democrats about you know over the past I mean, definitely my lifetime in that, you know, I, re- I can't remember who said it, but so- someone said that, you know, Barack Obama treats all of our allies like their enemies and all of our enemies like their friends. And for some inexplicable reason, Donald Trump has been able to do that and not receive the level of criticism that any other president would have gotten. Because I don't think it's just a Republican hypocrisy thing. I think if Jeb Bush was behaving this way, I think everyone's reaction would be very, very different. And I, I genuinely think that. Um, so I, I'm just very curious to see how the Republican Party handles this. Because, you know, back in 2012, Romney said Russia was our number one geopolitical foe. And now I feel like most... Republican voters think Putin is is at least not an enemy that he's I I don't I don't understand how people are framing this in their heads. And so I guess what I would like to see out of this and what I, I hope happens is that we come out of this strange time with Trump and reassessing what our role on the national stage needs to be and that we have a uh, thorough public conversation in America about that because uh, it, people are definitely dissatisfied with the status quo of America on an international stage, but I don't think anyone wants us to go exactly where we're going right now. This to me seems like a good advertisement for career politicians. They have financial records. They have to disclose their finances. They have experience. They've dealt with these issues for a long time. So maybe you should support your local career politician. Um, On that, though, I think we are going to wrap up our discussions. And so I will turn this over to my conversation with Don Johnson. 
she is running in uh, running for a seat in the state Senate against Frank Ginn in the Athens Clark County area. Um, I began by asking Dawn what she was doing before she decided to jump into politics, what her background uh, was like and what what kind of work she was doing before she got drawn into this race. Um, so here I am with Don Johnson. So Don, could you tell us a little bit about your background and your life before becoming a candidate for state Senate? Sure. Um, for the last 17 years, I've worked in the field of developmental disabilities. I'm the third generation in my family to do that. I've worked in pretty much every area there is to work in. Um, but right now, I direct a program that helps adults with developmental disabilities and high school students that are of transition age um, find and community employment and competitive wages in real jobs, not in segregated work settings. And I also serve on the State Rehabilitation Council, where they oversee and kind of advise and consent on the services of the Georgia Vocational Rehabilitation Agency. And I've been on that council for the last year. Prior to going into uh, the developmental disability field, I studied at the University of South Carolina in Aiken. I studied biology, um, and I got a master's degree in creative writing at Queen's University of Charlotte. But even before I went to school, I was a deputy sheriff in Richmond County and Columbia County, which are right in Augusta, for about five years. And then that was like my first real job, and then I decided I wanted to go back to college. And in college, I got some part-time jobs through my mom, working in the developmental disability field. And then right when I graduated with my master's degree, I thought I would be teaching college English, but the economy crashed. It was 2008. And all these jobs went adjunct. So you really can't earn a decent living and certainly can't pay student loans back with them. So I got offered a job again in the developmental disability field. And I just decided I really enjoyed doing that work. So I've just been doing it ever since full time. And so what made you decide to jump in this race and challenge uh, Frank Ginn, who's been a longtime incumbent in this district? Well, for the years, we were riding our cat in every election because no one ever ran against him. Um, there, there was a couple of years that he was challenged, but I would say it maybe wasn't a serious challenge. Um, and, you know, you can't have democracy if you ha don't have a choice. I mean, at minimum, two people is more of a dilemma than a choice, but one person is certainly not a choice. And I was just really irritated by a lot of the bills that were going through the state house. You know, they're, they're 40 days out of the year, and some of the legislation that was going through, which English is the official language, was something Ginn sponsored, and that bill serves no purpose other than being racist. And, you know, Georgia has so many real problems. We are one of the highest uninsured populations in the country. We are number one for maternal mortality. Um, we're number seven for infant mortality. We're 10 for poverty. And these are real problems that need addressing. And instead, we have got these Republicans going to Atlanta and wasting time, you know, worrying about what kind of questions are on the college AP U.S. history exam and passing legislation to try to change the test 
when, you know, there are people dying because they don't have health coverage and, you know, women and children and uninsured people. And I just thought it was time that we got someone in who was actually going to do the work of the people. So you mentioned Georgia being on the wrong end of a lot of bad lists. What are uh, some of the policies that are important to you? And what would you like to see done about those if you uh, get sent to the Capitol in 2019? Well, we're actually going to be unrolling and unveiling within the next month what we call the Pact for Prosperity. And it is a series of policies that cover the major areas that affect everyone's life, from education health care, employment, and infrastructure so that we can have an opportunity at closing the economic gaps, the opportunity gaps, the insurance gaps that the average Georgian is encountering every day. So some of those policy areas would be, you know, funding K-12 education at a formula that was set in 2018 and not a formula that was created when Miami Vice was the most popular show. And also having a funding formula that shows that kids who live in poverty need more funding support. And, you know, that's why so many of the Clark County schools have failing grades. It's not because the Clark County teachers are bad or the school system isn't trying. It's they're not getting the money to support and serve the kids they need to. And so that's the legislature's fault, and they need to change that funding formula. And then, you know, giving more equity and pay for teachers. There is no incentive for a teacher to go into a a pre-K program because you'll take less money even with the same educational qualifications as somebody who teaches kindergarten. And, you know, I want universal pre-K. And part of that is we have to entice teachers to want to teach pre-K, and when they're making less money, it's going to be a hard sell to get teachers in. So, you know, funding the schools at the rates they need, looking at how we can specifically close performance gaps and opportunity gaps. And you can see clear, you know, discrepancies in the test results of of white kids and African-American kids and Hispanic kids. And it's not because the Hispanic kids and African-American kids aren't smart. It's because there are some supports missing that they need. And we need to put those in place if we want them to have the same success that the white kids who are sitting next to them in class have. And that requires some more funding, but it also requires some other external programs. And I want to make technical school free again and expand the HOPE scholarship. There's, you know, I have a whole policy of HOPE for all, where HOPE's not just eligible to, you know, kids with higher GPAs, because now it's going to more kids who financially don't really need it and the people that it was created for, the lower-income kids, aren't getting it. And, you know, we talked about how in K-12 through there's that opportunity and performance gap. Well, if you're holding that performance gap against them so that they can never go to college, you know, why even bother to send people to school if we're going to keep them from being successful at every phase of their life? So we have to lower those educational standards that they put in place for HOPE and expand the funding opportunities. And we can make it income dependent so that, you know, the more money you have, the less of hope is available to you so that we can make sure it's going to the people who really need it. Um, There's like an 8% completion rate of low-income enrollees in college. We need to put things in place to change that. So part of that uh, package of, of, 
you know, advanced education is kids need Medicaid. If they're, you know, going back and maybe they didn't go right away to college, so they're, you know, like my son aged out of our health insurance while he was in college, so he's uninsured. Well, we can put Medicaid in place. We can make people eligible for food stamps because a lot of students are dropping out because they're homeless and don't have food. And that's what really makes it difficult for people to, who are low income to put four years aside where you can only work part time. They, they don't have the resources. Their families can't pad their budget and they don't have savings. So it becomes really difficult for them. And that's why there's such a high dropout rate. We can change that. And then, you know, we send people to jail. We have a bottomless checkbook when it comes to punishing people, but we seem to never have any money when it comes to helping people. So if you are a low-income kid in, in Athens or Barrow, you know, in one of the Barrow counties, and you get pulled over for a speeding ticket and you can't afford to pay it, you'll go to jail. And so we'll take a poor kid and put them in jail because they can't pay a ticket. So what I would like to have is a program that if failure to pay fine is the only reason that you're going to be going to jail, that instead we divert you to a trade school or a tech school, and then upon completion, that failure to pay fine goes away. And now there's somebody who we didn't have to, you know, pay to put them in jail. We've paid to train them and get them a better job. So down the road, if they got another speeding ticket, they could actually pay it because they earn a living wage now. Um, another important issue that the state faces is the issue of health care. Um, you had an interesting proposal on your website uh, where you say you'd like to provide peach care as a public option for health insurance. Could you tell us a little bit about that proposal and broadly what you would like to see done on health care in the state? Well, I think we definitely need to expand Medicaid. It was sheer insanity that we gave up years of free federal money that would have insured, you know, hundreds of thousands of Georgians. We have 1.9 million uninsured Georgians right now. And, you know, the Medicaid expansion is going to cover a lot of people. But for the people that that Medicaid expansion wouldn't cover, then we could offer peach care as a buy-in because it's already set up to take payments. It's, you know, there are four, four to five usually insurance carriers on it that you can choose which plan you want. So there's still choice. And, you know, the system's already in place. We would just be expanding the people that it was opened up to. And if we made that available to uninsured people, but also self-employed people or their employees or people who pay a lot. Um, we were talking today where I work, and to ensure your family, if you've got a spouse and one kid, it was $15,700 a year out of the employee's paycheck to provide that health coverage. That's tight for me to do as a director, but for some of the direct support staff there who make, you know, $10 an hour, that's impossible. They can never afford that insurance. So if there was a, a buy-in option where you could pay three or $400 a month to the state and get health insurance, that's going to be affordable for people. It's going to allow people to move from jobs because if you are tied to a job because they've got an affordable health insurance, but maybe the wages aren't great or the working conditions aren't great, you're stuck. And so when you can't move around to choose the job that best suits your family, you don't have a lot of liberty. And when we talk about being a free society and free market, people need to be able to change jobs 
or to not miss work because they're sick and can't afford health insurance. Part of, uh, of the biggest part of economic liberty is having the ability to be upwardly mobile. And if you're locked into a job just for benefits, that restricts people's mobility. They can't start their own companies. They can't retire. They can't go back to school. This would remove that for people and for families who are struggling to pay health insurance premiums where they work, this would be a much more affordable option. And the prices would be kept low because so many people would be paying into one system. So when you have those risk corridors funded by more people using it, then it's going to keep the prices down. And, and eventually, you know, you could phase it in where over time it could be, you know, a universal payer system if Georgia decided to go to that. But I think this would be a good interim measure if we didn't want to go to, to straight, you know, Medicaid for all or Medicare for all, this is a good way to offer it to that 1.9 million Georgians who need health insurance and for the other families who have really expensive health insurance that, you know, this could allow them to have a little more economic freedom. And could you tell us a little bit about your economic security platform? You talk about a living wage, um, but do you have a target dollar amount for a living wage? And um, can you tell us a little bit about your position on Georgia's right to work laws? Um, well, I think $15 an hour is the baseline for a living wage. Um, if we kept with inflation and where wages should be, it should be 21 an hour. But I think that if we at least start pushing for 15 an hour, and it might not be that, you know, we do it, pass a bill, and it's $15 an hour the next day, but we could certainly put a system in place where over time, you know, a few years, you're at 15. But I think we also start tying business tax cuts. You know, we've been giving away money to corporations left and right for years, and you'll hear Cagle say, we're number one for business. Well, we're number one for business and we're tenths for poverty, then it doesn't take, you know, a mathematician to figure out that being the best state for a business doesn't equate to being the best state for your citizens. And so we need to make those tax cuts tied to something. And I think saying you have to pay a living wage, you have to offer affordable benefits, is a good place to start. <clears throat> I think there needs to be a lot more that's been done. Um, one of the things would be is, you know, in those areas where we still have really high unemployment, there are still some counties that have 9 to 10% unemployment. You know, we can do some targeted government job programs, almost almost like a jobs guarantee, um, so that in those areas we can put people to work. But I think one of the biggest ways to do that is through infrastructure. You know, Georgia has a really crumbling infrastructure. We have a D rating. Um, that's part of my economic platform is investing in infrastructure. You know, we have just in District 47, there are seven um, structurally deficient bridges that need to be repaired. There were 12. They've managed to fix five in a decade. And these aren't bridges that just could use some work. They're bridges that they have identified their deficiencies in load-bearing areas. I mean, it, it needs repairs, and that's not getting done. There are parts of the district that have dial-up Internet. There are parts where, you know, 
you've got one internet provider like us, and it's not great internet, it's really expensive. And if you want people to have 21st century jobs, we need to have 21st century utilities. So Georgia could invest in putting down, you know, the, the fiber and own the lines and lease them out to corporations to cover the cost of installing it. We could do a massive infrastructure building on roads and bridges. We can do policies to make where every government building has to have a certain percentage of, of green energy by, you know, 2020 or 2025. And so these, these create jobs, they're investment. And we've seen throughout our nation's history that if, if you want to spur the economy and improve the, the income of your average citizen in the middle class, you do it by investing and investing from the government. It's not really ever been investment from the private sector. It's been government spending that spurred that growth and investment. And we need to do that in Georgia because we've, you know, we, we're a low tax state, but we're also an incredibly low service state. And they've just sort of let the infrastructure crumble. And it's going to have to be fixed no matter what we do. So we might as well do it in a way that's more affordable and puts people to work. And, and you asked about um, the right-to-work laws. I, I would definitely want to roll those back, or as much of them as possible, because you know, they're a way of, of making sure nobody ever has a union. And, and when we've attacked unions, that's what's destroyed a lot of our middle class. When unions were strong, the middle class was strong. And, you know, these companies have come in, and if you don't have a union, they can arbitrarily assign you work schedules. Um, I've worked in places where employers were breaking the law, you know, all kinds of laws around the workplace, and people were afraid. They were afraid to say, we're working more hours than we're supposed to or we're not getting breaks because they're afraid they'd be fired. And so people are almost held hostage in a job until they can find something else. And if, if you're an employer who's following the law, I don't know why you're still afraid of having unions to have system or employees having some rights and bargaining power. And so I think we need to make it a more equitable relationship where some of those protections go back to employees as well. Um, so in the beginning of our conversation, you talked a little bit about your work with organizations that support people with disabilities. Could you tell me a little bit about what an agenda looks like that supports people with disabilities in Georgia? Well, the first thing we would do is, you know, expand the employment services to people. When, you know, year after year, we have a flat budget that comes back. And for instance, Georgia Vocational Rehab. If they had put $5 million more in their budget, we would have drawn down an additional $20 million from the federal government. And because we won't invest that $5 million, we've missed out on $20 million. And, and that's just bad math. That's bad investment, especially in an organization that puts people to work and has a really high success rate of putting people to work, which is what Republicans seem to want everybody to do, no matter how young or sick they are. So I, it makes no sense to me when they won't invest in, in programs to put people to work. Um, but the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities, they have 12,000 people on their waiting list. These are you know, families that have someone with a developmental disability diagnosed that are waiting for services. 
And so they call it graduating to the sofa. Kids will leave high school, and then there's nothing. And at the rate of the waiting list, there's, there are kids who will die on that waiting list because they'll never get services. And that needs to stop. There are other states that don't have any waiting lists. And it's just because Georgia generally falls anywhere from 47 to 50th in what we spend on Medicaid. We spend, uh, on some years, the least of any state. And, you know, it's not going to take a fortune to get people on that list services, but they need them. Um, so to step away from policy for a moment, uh, this year has seen a record number of women running for office, both in Georgia and across the country. And a lot of women have been motivated by rhetoric from President Trump and policies on health care pursued by Republican majorities in Washington. So could you talk a little bit about what running in this moment means to you? Well, I'm actually the first woman to ever run for District 47. And... That in, in and of itself was reason enough that I needed to run. It was 2018, and I had never had a woman represent me in the state house in my history of living in the state. And if you, as Elizabeth Warren said, if you're not, if you don't have a seat at the table, it's probably because you're on the menu. And so if women want to protect, you know, not just our access to health care, but just our basic human right of controlling our own body then we're going to need women in legislatures to do that. But it's also going to take women in there, you know, to take on gun violence and, you know, the dangers in schools. Those are moms that are getting out and marching and protesting and going to legislators about that. And so we need more women in these offices, as well as people of color, not just women, but people of, of all walks of life, of you know, the LGBT community, because the more your legislator looks legislature looks like you, the better represented you are. And right now, if you looked at our state legislature, you would think Georgia's about 90% white men who are Republican. And that's not the demographic of the state. And are there any other important points uh, that we missed that you'd like to hit on? See, I think we've covered a lot. <laughs> but I, I will say this, it is really important. If you know people have been frustrated you sort of wake up and think, oh, what, you know, what horror has happened today while I was, you know, at work or, you know, in a movie. Getting people out to vote is this, this shift in the legislatures in Georgia and at the federal level didn't happen overnight. It was, you know, from an organized plan from Republicans that they started with school boards and mayors and city councils and they worked their way up. And the state legislature is critical. You know, when I decided to run, I could have decided to run for Congress because everybody thinks, oh, I have to go to Congress to make a difference. But when I was advocating to end subminimum wage in Georgia for people with disabilities, I realized that it was a lot easier to go to a county and get them to try to ban it or to get somebody at a state office to say we won't fund this stuff anymore than it was to go to Congress and get something passed. And I realize that it's easier to protect people at the state level than it is the federal level because we don't need as many people on our side to do it. We, if we get a majority in the state house, we can change real things in Georgia. But the most important thing is 2020 is when we draw our maps again and we have a census. And that's how you change Congress because Congress didn't become a Republican majority because tons of Republicans ran. It became a Republican majority because tons of Republican populated state houses and drew lines to ensure that Republicans keep those seats. 
I think John Barrow from Athens was an example of that. He had to move a number of times to stay in his district until he was finally gerrymandered out. And that's how they've done it. So if we want to take back Congress and we want to take back the Supreme Court, we've got to start with our state houses and go from there. And that's not going to happen until we start focusing on those races and getting people out to vote for them. Because these state races are a lot more important than people have historically thought. Well, Don, if people would like to learn more about your campaign, how can they do that? They can come to um, my website, which is electdawn.org, or they can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, Dawn Johnson for Georgia State Senate. I'm on both, and my website has links to those, so you can still follow me on social media. And if you would like to volunteer for a campaign, you can sign up at our website, and if you would like to donate, and we would really like you to donate, there are also links there to take you to our donation account. All right. Well, Don, thanks so much for joining the show, and best of luck on the trail. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend, and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.